Chapter Four of Three Men on the Bummel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. Three Men on the Bummel by Jerome K. Jerome. Chapter Four. Why Harris considers alarm clocks unnecessary in a family. Social instinct of the young. A child's thoughts about the morning. The sleepless watchman. The mystery of him. His over-anxiety. Night thoughts. The sort of work one does before breakfast. The good sheep and the bad. Disadvantages of being virtuous. Harris's new stove begins badly. The daily outgoing of my uncle Padja. The elderly city man considered as a racer. We arrive in London. We talk the language of the traveller. George came down on Tuesday evening and slept at Harris's place. We thought this a better arrangement than his own suggestion, which was that we should call for him on our way and pick him up. Picking George up in the morning means picking him out of bed, to begin with, and shaking him awake. In itself, an exhausting effort, with which to commence the day, helping him find his things, and finish his packing, and then waiting for him while he eats his breakfast, a tedious entertainment from the spectator's point of view, full of wearisome repetition. I knew that if he slept at Beggarbush, he would be up in time. I have slept there myself, and I know what happens. About the middle of the night, as you judge, though in reality it may be somewhat later, you are startled out of your first sleep by what sounds like a rush of cavalry along the passage, just outside your door. Your half-awakened intelligence fluctuates between burglars, the day of judgment, and a gas explosion. You sit up in bed and listen intently. You are not kept waiting long. The next moment a door is violently slammed, and somebody or something is evidently coming downstairs on a tea-tray. "'I told you so,' says a voice outside, and immediately some hard substance, a head, one would say, from the ring of it, rebounds against the panel of your door. By this time you are charging madly round the room for your clothes. Nothing is where you put it overnight. The articles most essential have disappeared entirely, and meanwhile the murder, or revolution, or whatever it is, continues unchecked. You pause for a moment, with your head under the wardrobe, where you think you can see your slippers, to listen to a steady, monotonous thumping upon a distant door. The victim, you presume, has taken refuge there. They mean to have him out and finish him. Will you be in time? The knocking ceases, and a voice sweetly reassuring in its gentle plaintiveness asks meekly, Pa! May I get up? You do not hear the other voice, but the responses are, No, it was only the bag. No, she ain't really hurt. Only wet, you know. Yes, Ma, I'll tell him what you say. No, it was a pure accident. Yes, good night, Papa. Then the same voice exerting itself, so as to be heard in a distant part of the house, remarks, You've got to come upstairs again. Paul says it isn't time to get up yet. You return to bed, and lie listening to somebody being dragged upstairs, evidently against their will, by a thoughtful arrangement the spare rooms at Beggarbush 
are exactly underneath the nurseries the same somebody you conclude still offering the most creditable opposition is being put back into bed you can follow the contest with much exactitude because every time the body is flung down upon the spring mattress the bedstead just above your head makes a sort of jump while every time the body succeeds in struggling out again you are aware by the thud upon the floor after a time the struggle wanes or maybe the bed collapses and you drift back into sleep but the next moment or what seems to be the next moment you again open your eyes under the consciousness of a presence the door is being held ajar and four solemn faces piled one on top of the other are peering at you as though you were some natural curiosity kept in this particular room seeing you awake the top face walking calmly over the other three comes in and sits on the bed in a friendly attitude oh it says we didn't know you were awake i've been awake some time so i gather you reply shortly pa doesn't like us to get up too early it continues he says everybody else in the house is liable to be disturbed if we get up so of course we mustn't the tone is that of gentle resignation it is instinct with the spirit of virtuous pride arising from the conscientiousness of self-sacrifice don't you call this being up you suggest oh no we're not really up you know because we're not properly dressed the fact is self-evident pa's always very tired in the morning the voice continues of course that's because he works hard all day are you ever tired in the morning at this point he turns and notices for the first time that the three other children have also entered and are sitting in a semicircle on the floor from their attitude it is clear they have mistaken the whole thing for one of the slower forms of entertainment some comic lecture or conjuring exhibition and are waiting patiently for you to get out of bed and do something it shocks him the idea of their being in the guest's bedchamber he peremptorily orders them out they do not answer him they do not argue in dead silence and with one accord they fall upon him all you can see from the bed is a confused tangle of waving arms and legs suggestive of an intoxicated octopus trying to find bottom not a word is spoken that seems to be the etiquette of the thing if you are sleeping in your pyjamas you spring from the bed and only add to the confusion if you are wearing a less showy garment you stop where you are and shout commands which are utterly unheeded the simplest plan is to leave it to the eldest boy he does get them out after a while and closes the door upon them it reopens immediately and one generally muriel is shot back into the room she enters as from a catapult she is handicapped by having long hair which can be used as a convenient handle evidently aware of this natural disadvantage she clutches it herself tightly in one hand and punches with the other he opens the door again and cleverly uses her as a battering-ram against the ball of those without. You can hear the dull crash as her head enters among them, and scatters them. When the victory is complete, he comes back and resumes his seat on the bed. There is no bitterness about him. He has forgotten the whole incident. "'I like the morning,' he says. "'Don't you?' "'Some mornings,' you agree, "'are all right. Others are not so peaceful. He takes no notice of your exception.' A far-away look steals over his somewhat ethereal face. "'I should like to die in the morning,' he says. "'Everything is so beautiful, then.' "'Well,' you answer, "'perhaps you will. 
if your father ever invites an irritable man to come and sleep here, and doesn't warn him beforehand. He descends from his contemplative mood, and becomes himself again. "'It's jolly in the garden,' he suggests. "'You wouldn't like to get up and have a game of cricket, would you?' "'It was not the idea with which you went to bed. "'But now, as things have turned out, "'it seems as good a plan as lying there hopelessly awake, and you agree. "'You learn later in the day that the explanation of the proceeding "'is that you, unable to sleep, woke up early in the morning, "'and thought you would like a game of cricket. "'The children taught to be ever courteous to guests, "'felt it their duty to humour you. Mrs. Harris remarks at breakfast that at least you might have seen to it that the children were properly dressed before you took them out, while Harris points out to you pathetically how by your one morning's example and encouragement you have undone his labour of months. On this Wednesday morning, George, it seems, clamoured to get up at a quarter past five, and persuaded them to let him teach them cycling tricks round the cucumber frames on Harris's new wheel. Even Mrs. Harris, however, did not blame George on this occasion. She felt intuitively the idea could not have been entirely his. It is not that the Harris children have the faintest notion of avoiding blame at the expense of a friend and comrade. One and all, they are honesty itself in accepting responsibility for their own misdeeds. It simply is that it's how the thing presents itself to their understanding. When you explained to them that you had no original intention of getting up at five o'clock in the morning to play cricket on the croquet lawn, or to mimic the history of the early church by shooting with a crossbow at dolls tied to a tree, that as a matter of fact, left to your own initiative, you would have slept peacefully till roused in Christian fashion with a cup of tea at eight. They are firstly astonished, secondly apologetic, and thirdly sincerely contrite. In the present instance, waiving the purely academic question, whether the awakening of George at a little before five was due to natural instinct on his part, or to the accidental passing of a home-made boomerang through his bedroom window, the dear children frankly admitted that the blame for his uprising was their own, as the eldest boy said. We ought to have remembered that Uncle George had a long day before him, and we ought to have dissuaded him from getting up. I blame myself entirely, but an occasional change of habit does nobody any harm, and besides, as Harris and I agreed, it was good training for George. In the Black Forest we should be up at five every morning. That we had determined on. Indeed, George himself had suggested half-past four, but Harris and I had argued that five would be early enough as an average. That would enable us to be on our machines by six, and to break the back of our journey before the heat of the day set in. Occasionally we might start a little earlier, but not as a habit. I myself was up that morning at five. This was earlier than I had intended. I had said to myself on going to sleep, six o'clock sharp. There are men I know who can wake themselves at any time to the minute. They say to themselves literally as they lay their heads upon the pillow, four-thirty, four-forty-five, or five-fifteen, as the case may be, and as the clock strikes they open their eyes. It is very wonderful, this. The more one dwells upon it, the greater the mystery grows. Some ego within us, acting quite independently of our conscience self, must be capable of counting the hours while we sleep, unaided by clock or sun, or any other medium known to our five senses. It keeps watch through the darkness. At the exact moment it whispers, Time! And we awake. The work of an old riverside fellow I once talked with called him to be out of bed each morning half an hour before high tide. He told me that never once had he overslept himself by a minute. Latterly, he never even troubled to work out the tide for himself. He would lie down tired, and sleep a dreamless sleep, 
and each morning at a different hour this ghostly watchman, true as the tide itself, would silently call him. Did the man's spirit haunt through the darkness the muddy river stairs, or had it knowledge of the ways of nature? Whatever the process, the man himself was unconscious of it. In my own case, my inward watchman is, perhaps, somewhat out of practice. He does his best, but he is over-anxious. He worries himself and loses count. I say to him, maybe five-thirty, please, and he wakes me with a start at half-past two. I look at my watch. He suggests that perhaps I forgot to wind it up. I put it to my ear. It is still going. He thinks maybe something has happened to it. He is confident himself it is half-past five, if not a little later. To satisfy him, I put on a pair of slippers and go downstairs to inspect the dining-room clock. What happens to a man when he wanders about the house in the middle of the night, clad in a dressing-gown and pair of slippers? There is no need to recount. Most men know by experience. Everything, especially everything with a sharp corner, takes a cowardly delight in hitting him. When you are wearing a pair of stout boots, things get out of your way. When you venture among furniture in wool-work, slippers, and no socks, it comes at you and kicks you. I return to bed, bad-tempered and refusing to listen to his further absurd suggestion that all the clocks in the house have entered into a conspiracy against me. Take half an hour to get to sleep again. From four to five he wakes me every ten minutes. I wish I had never said a word to him about the thing. At five o'clock he goes to sleep himself, worn out, and leaves it to the girl, who does it half an hour later than usual. On this particular Wednesday he worried me to such an extent that I got up at five simply to be rid of him. I did not know what to do with myself. Our train did not leave till eight. All our luggage had been packed and sent on the night before, together with the bicycles to Finchurch Street Station. I went into my study. I thought I would put in an hour's writing. Before one has breakfasted is not, I take it, a good season for literary effort. I wrote three paragraphs of a story, and then read them over to myself. Some unkind words have been said about my work, but nothing has yet been written which would have done justice to those three paragraphs. I threw them into the waste-paper basket, and sat trying to remember what, if any, charitable institutions provided pensions for decayed authors. To escape from this train of reflection, I put a golf-ball in my pocket, and selecting a driver, strolled out into the paddock. A couple of sheep were browsing there, and they followed and took a keen interest in my practice. The one was a kindly, sympathetic old party. I do not think she understood the game. I think it was my doing this innocent thing so early in the morning that appealed to her. At every stroke I made, she bleated. Good! Good, indeed! She seemed as pleased as if she had done it herself. As for the other one, she was a cantankerous, disagreeable old thing, as discouraging to me as her friend was helpful. Bad! Damn bad! was her comment on almost every stroke. As a matter of fact, some were really excellent strokes, but she did it just to be contradictory and for the sake of irritating. I could see that. By a most regrettable accident, one of my swiftest balls struck the good sheep on the nose, and at that the bad sheep laughed, laughed distinctly and undoubtedly a husky, vulgar laugh, and while her friend stood glued to the ground, too astonished to move, she changed her note for the first time and bleated, "'Good! Very good!' "'Best shot he's made!' "'I would have given half a crown "'if it had been she I had hit instead of the other one. "'It is ever the good and amiable who suffer in this world. "'I had wasted more time than I had intended in the paddock, "'and when Ethelbertha came to tell me it was half-past seven "'and the breakfast was on the table, "'I remembered that I had not shaved. "'It vexes Ethelbertha my shaving quickly. 
she fears that outsiders it may suggest a poor-spirited attempt at suicide and that in consequence it may get about the neighbourhood that we are not happy together as a further argument she has also hinted that my appearance is not of the kind that can be trifled with on the whole i was just as glad not to be able to take a long farewell of ethelbertha i did not want to risk her breaking down but i should have liked more opportunity to say a few farewell words of advice to the children especially as regards my fishing-rod which they will persist in using for cricket-stumps and i hate having to run for a train quarter of a mile from the station i overtook george and harris they were also running in their case so harris informed me jerkily while we trotted side by side it was the new kitchen stove that was to blame this was the first morning they had tried it and from some cause or other it had blown up the kidneys and scalded the cook he said he hoped by the time we returned they would have got more used to it we caught the train by the skin of our teeth as the saying is and reflecting upon the events of the morning as we sat gasping in the carriage there passed vividly before my mind the panorama of my uncle podger as on two hundred and fifty days in the year he would start from ealing common by the nine thirteen train to moorgate street from uncle podger's house to the railway station was an eight-minute walk what my uncle always said was allow yourself a quarter of an hour and take it easily what he always did was start five minutes before the time and run i do not know why but this was the custom of the suburb many stout city gentlemen lived at ealing in those days i believe some lived there still and caught early trains to town they all started late they all carried a black bag and a newspaper in one hand and an umbrella in the other and for the last quarter of a mile to the station wet or fine they all ran folks with nothing else to do nursemaids chiefly and errand-boys with now and then a perambulating costermonger added would gather on the common of a fine morning to watch them pass and cheer the most deserving it was not a showy spectacle they did not run well they did not even run fast but they were earnest and they did their best the exhibition appealed less to one's sense of art than to one's natural admiration for conscientious effort occasionally a little harmless betting would take place among the crowd two to one again the old gent in the white whitskit ten to one on old blowpipes bar he don't roll over hisself fore he gets there heaven money on the purple emperor a nickname bestowed by a youth of entomological tastes upon a certain retired military neighbour of my uncle's a gentleman of imposing appearance when stationary but apt to colour highly under exercise my uncle and the others would write to the Ealing Press, complaining bitterly concerning the supineness of the local police, and the editor would add spirited leaders upon the decay of courtesy among the lower orders, especially throughout the western suburbs, but no good ever resulted. It was not that my uncle did not rise early enough. It was that troubles came to him at the last moment. The first thing he would do after breakfast would be to lose his newspaper. We always knew when Uncle Podger had lost anything, by the expression of astonished indignation with which, on such occasions, he would regard the world in general. It never occurred to my Uncle Podger to say to himself, I am a careless old man. I lose everything. I never know where I put anything. I am quite incapable of finding it again for myself. In this respect, I must be a perfect nuisance to everybody about me. I must get to work and reform myself on the contrary by some peculiar course of reasoning he had convinced himself that whenever he lost a thing it was everybody else's fault in the house but his own i had it in my hand here not a minute ago he would exclaim from his tone 
you would have thought he was living surrounded by conjurers who spirited away things from him merely to irritate him could you have left it in the garden my aunt would suggest what should i want to leave it in the garden for i don't want a paper in the garden i want the paper in the train with me you haven't put it in your pocket god bless the woman do you think i should be standing here at five minutes to nine looking for it if i had it in my pocket all the while do you think i'm a fool here somebody would exclaim what's this and hand him from somewhere a paper neatly folded i do wish people would leave my things alone he would growl snatching at it savagely he would open his bag to put it in and then glancing at it he would pause speechless with sense of injury what's the matter aunt would ask the day before yesterday's he would answer too hurt even to shout throwing the paper down upon the table if only sometimes it had been yesterday's it would have been a change but it was always the day before yesterday's except on tuesday then it would be saturday's we would find it for him eventually as often as not he was sitting on it and then he would smile not genially but with the weariness that comes to a man who feels that fate has cast his lot among a band of hopeless idiots all the time right in front of your noses he would not finish the sentence he prided himself on his self-control this settled he would stop for the hall where it was the custom of my aunt maria to have the children gathered ready to say good-bye to him my aunt never left the house herself if only to make a call next door without taking a tender farewell of every inmate one never knew she would say what might happen one of them of course was sure to be missing and the moment this was noticed all the other six without an instant's hesitation would scatter with a whoop to find it immediately they were gone it would turn up by itself from somewhere quite near always with the most reasonable explanation for its absence and would at once start off after the others to explain to them that it was found in this way five minutes at least would be taken up in everybody's looking for everybody else which was just sufficient time to allow my uncle to find his umbrella and lose his hat then at last the group reassembled in the hall the drawing-room clock would commence to strike nine it possessed a cold penetrating chime that always had the effect of confusing my uncle in his excitement he would kiss some of the children twice over pass by others forget whom he had kissed and whom he hadn't and have to begin all over again he used to say he believed they mixed themselves up on purpose and i am not prepared to maintain that the charge was altogether false to add to his troubles one child always had a sticky face and that child would always be the most affectionate if things were going too smoothly the eldest boy would come out with some tale about all the clocks in the house being five minutes slow and of his having been late for school the previous day in consequence this would send my uncle rushing impetuously down to the gate where he would recollect that he had with him neither his bag nor his umbrella all the children that my aunt could not stop would charge after him two of them struggling for the umbrella the other surging round the bag and when they returned we would discover on the hall-table the most important thing of all that he had forgotten and wondered what he would say about it when he came home we arrived at waterloo a little after nine and at once proceeded to put george's experiment into operation opening the book at the chapter entitled at the cab rank we walked up to a hansom raised our hats and wished the driver good morning this man was not to be outdone in politeness for any foreigner real or imitation calling to a friend named charles to hold the steed he sprang from his box and returned to us a bow that would have done credit to mr turveydrop himself 
Speaking apparently in the name of the nation, he welcomed us to England, adding a regret that Her Majesty was not at the moment in London. We could not reply to him in kind. Nothing of this sort had been anticipated by the book. We called him coachman, at which he again bowed to the pavement, and asked him if he would have the goodness to drive us to the Westminster Bridge Road. He laid his hand upon his heart, and said the pleasure would be his. Taking the third sentence in the chapter, George asked him what his fare would be. The question is introducing a sordid element into the conversation seemed to hurt his feelings. He said he never took money from distinguished strangers. He suggested a souvenir, a diamond scarf-pin, a gold snuff-box, some little trifle of that sort by which he could remember us. As a small crowd had collected, and as the joke was drifting rather too far in the, in the cabman's direction, we climbed in without further parley, and were driven away amid cheers. We stopped the cab at a boot-shop a little past Astley's theatre that looked the sort of place we wanted. It was one of those overfed shops that the moment their shutters are taken down in the morning disgorge their goods all around them. Boxes of boots stood piled on the pavement or in the gutter opposite. Boots hung in festoons about its doors and windows. Its sun-blind was a some grimy vine, bearing bunches of black and brown boots. Inside the shop was a bower of boots. The man, when we entered, was busy with a chisel and hammer opening a new crate full of boots. George raised his hat and said, "'Good morning.' The man did not even turn around. He struck me from the first as a disagreeable man. He grunted something which might have been good morning, or might not, and went on with his work. George said, I have been recommended to your shop by my friend Mr. X. In response, the man should have said, Mr. X is a most worthy gentleman. It will give me the greatest pleasure to serve any friend of his. What he did say was, Don't know him. Never heard of him. This was disconcerting. The book gave three or four methods of buying boots. George had carefully selected the one centred round Mr. X as being of all the most courtly. You talked a good deal with the shopkeeper about Mr. X, and then, when by this means friendship and understanding had been established, you slid naturally and gracefully into the immediate object of your coming, namely, your desire for boots, cheap and good. This gross material man cared apparently nothing for the niceties of retail dealing. It was necessary with such a one to come to business with brutal directness. George abandoned Mr. X, and turned back to a previous page, took a sentence at random, it was not a happy selection. It was a speech that would have been superfluous made to any bootmaker. Under the present circumstances, threatened and stifled as we were on every side by boots, it possessed the dignity of positive imbecility. It ran, One has told me that you have here boots for sale. For the first time the man put down his hammer and chisel and looked at us. He spoke slowly, in a thick and husky voice. He said, What do you think I keep boots for? To smell em? He was one of those men that begin quietly and grow more angry as they proceed, their wrongs apparently working within them like yeast. "'What do you think I am?' he continued. "'A boot collector? What do you think I'm running this shop for, my health? Do you think I love the boots and can't bear to part with a pair? Do you think I hang em about here to look at em? Ain't there enough of em? Where'd you think you are? In an international exhibition of boots?' What do you think these boots are, a historical collection? Did you ever hear of a man keeping a boot shop and not selling boots? Do you think I decorate the shop with them to make it look pretty? What do you take me for, a prize idiot? I have always maintained that these conversation books are never of any real use. What we wanted 
was some English equivalent for the well-known German idiom, Behalten sei er har off. Nothing of the sort was to be found in the book from beginning to end. However, I will do George the credit to admit he chose the very best sentence that was to be found therein, and applied it. He said, I will come again, when perhaps you will have some more boots to show me. Till then, adieu. With that, we returned to our cab and drove away, leaving the man standing in the centre of his boot-bedecked doorway, addressing remarks to us. What he said I did not hear, but the passers-by appeared to find it interesting. George was for stopping at another boot-shop and trying the experiment afresh. He said he really did want a pair of bedroom slippers, but we persuaded him to postpone their purchase until our arrival in some foreign city, where the tradespeople are no doubt more inured to this sort of talk, or else more naturally amiable. On the subject of the hat, however, he was adamant. He maintained that without that he could not travel, and accordingly we pulled up at a small shop in the Blackfriars Road. The proprietor of this shop was a cheery, bright-eyed little man, and he helped us rather than hindered us. When George asked him in the words of the book, "'Have you any hats?' He did not get angry. He just stopped and thoughtfully scratched his chin. "'Hats,' he said. "'Let me think.' "'Yes.' Here a smile of positive pleasure broke over his genial countenance. "'Yes, now I come to think of it, I believe I have a hat. But tell me, why do you ask me?' George explained to him that he wished to purchase a cap, a travelling cap, but the essence of the transaction was that it was to be a good cap. The man's face fell. "'Ah,' he remarked, "'there I am afraid you have me. Now if you had wanted a bad cap, not worth the price asked for it, a cap good for nothing but to clean windows with, I would have found you the very thing.' "'But a good cap. No, we don't keep them. But wait a minute,' he continued on seeing the disappointment that spread over George's expressive countenance. "'Don't be in a hurry. I have a cap here.' He went to a drawer and opened it. "'It is not a good cap, but it is not so bad as most of the caps I sell.' He brought it forward and extended on his palm. "'What do you think of that?' he asked. "'Could you put up with that?' George fitted it on before the glass, and choosing another remark from the book, said— this hat fits me sufficiently well, but tell me, do you consider that it becomes me? The man stepped back and took a bird's-eye view. Candidly, he replied, I can't say that it does. He turned from George, and addressed himself to Harris and myself. Your friend's beauty, he said he, I should describe as elusive. It is there, but you can easily miss it. Now in that cap, to my mind, you do miss it. At that point it occurred to George that he had had sufficient fun with this particular man, and he said— that is all right. We don't want to lose the train. How much? Answered the man. The price of that cap, sir, which in my opinion is twice as much as it is worth, is four and six. Would you like it wrapped up in brown paper, sir, or in white? George said he would take it, as it was. Paid the man for it in six and silver, and went out. Harris and I followed. At Fenchurch Street we compromised with our cabman for five shillings. He made us another courtly bow, and begged us to remember him to the Emperor of Austria. Comparing views in the train, we agreed that we had lost the game by two points to one, and George, who was evidently disappointed, threw the book out of the window. We found our luggage and the bicycle safe on the boat, and with the tide at twelve dropped down the river. End of chapter 4 Recording by Tara Mendoza Phoenix, Arizona, April 2011